Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, creative and technical director here at Evidence for Faith. And as a friendly reminder, this is the last weekend that you can register for Marine Biology 2022. So make sure to get that application and deposit it in before Monday midnight, Monday, February 28th, midnight. Now it does happen every once in a while that we accept applications after that. But the reason we need your application in before Monday midnight is because we need to confirm reservations, make sure we have all the right spots for all the excursions and all this other stuff. So don't count on getting your application accepted after February 28th. Get it in before February 28th. <laughs> this is the last, the last weekend to do it. So go ahead and do it. Um, if you need a scholarship, there is information on the website on how to get more information on that and get that ball rolling. Um, there's also our phone numbers on there if you need to get a hold of us right away. But we look forward to seeing you on the trip. Uh, to get more information on that, you can go and register. That's the important part. You need to register. You can go to evidenceforfaith.org slash 2022 marine biology. That's evidence, the number for faith.org slash 2022 marine biology. So back to our podcast here. We are still in Messianic Prophecies. I know I've heard people want, want a little more variety, but trust me, we are finishing the season one with Messianic Prophecies. Uh, we are making good headway here in the Old Testament. Actually, we're going to be done pretty soon from what Michael has told me. I don't know if soon is like in the next two episodes or in the next five episodes. So don't take my word for it. Take Michael's word for it because <laughs> he, he will know how fast we're going through this. But he keeps telling me we're, we're almost done. So I'm very excited to be launching new content in season two. Anyways. Back to Messianic Prophets. We are in uh, episode 17 of The Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament. As always, the show is supported by listeners just like you. If you would like to help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. And make sure I got that right. <laughs> All right. And without further ado, here is Michael in episode 17 of The Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament. Hello and welcome to Evidence for Faith. Uh, this is your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're joining me again as we continue in our series on the road to Emmaus, Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, the suffering Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. So as we get into this series today, we're moving right along. And in this one, we're in the book of Isaiah. And so if you have your Bibles and or notebook or whatever you're doing, or if you're just listening, that's fine too. Um, we'll be going into uh, continuing with Isaiah and getting into some fascinating things today. And I want to thank you. Just take a moment here. I want to thank you so much for joining. We've had so many really interesting and nice comments from people who have, have been telling us that they've been uh, downloading the podcast and listening to the lessons, and they're just thrilled with them. Uh, we've we've had people tell us how much they've enjoyed these and how much they've learned from this. And, well, we're so happy the, to get comments. Um, we even had some that were questioning certain things that I have said and uh, asking for clarification and more detail. Hey, that's great. We, we just want to hear how um, how this is helping you. If it is, and uh, if you could contact us through our, our um, website and stuff to let us know, we, we greatly appreciate it. And those who have been praying for our ministry, we thank you also for helping for that. And those who support us, of course, we really, really uh, thank you for helping us in making these uh, these podcasts and the videos that we do and, and even traveling around with different speaking events. We thank you so much for this. So with that, we're going to get started with this one today. 
in this lesson, where as I say, we're in Isaiah. We just started Isaiah in the last uh, the last lesson, and we're at number fifty six. As you know, we've been covering these by by counting them. Uh, and again, we're just doing the major messianic prophecies about the the coming of Jesus, how Jesus fulfilled these. As we've said in the past, if you haven't, maybe this is the first time you're listening, um, the Old Testament scriptures, um, the Old Covenant, actually speaks of two different types of Messiah that would be coming to the Jews. One was the suffering Messiah, and the other is the victorious warrior judge king Messiah. Now, Jesus is the Messiah. He's both Messiahs, but because there's a suffering Messiah and a warrior judge king Messiah, um, they come in different times in human history. The suffering Messiah came in the form of Jesus Christ when he came and was born of the Virgin Mary. He already existed. He's the creator God, um, but he became incarnate in, in human flesh. God coming as the suffering Messiah to redeem, to offer grace, to fix the problem of sin and death which he came to conquer so that we could be forgiven of our sins and actually be in an eternal relationship with God. That's why he came. And so he came as the sacrificial lamb. And uh, we celebrated at Christmas time his birth. And, um, and then, of course, we celebrate around Passover about the time when he actually becomes the Lamb of God and takes away as a prophecy we're going to see coming up in Zechariah, where he removes the sins of the, uh, of the people in one single day, one event, which he does at the cross. So we have these prophecies. I just let you in on one that's coming. But um, we have those uh, prophecies, and this is what we're doing, these prophecies concerning the suffering Messiah. Having to do with the victorious warrior judge king Messiah, that's Jesus when he, re when he returns. The Messiah all we Christians are waiting for, and actually the Jews are waiting for this one. They missed the first one. They missed the suffering Messiah when he came. Even in spite of having all of these prophecies, they didn't even recognize him, which again, that was a prophecy. They did not even recognize him when he came. Because they had been taught that the suffering Messiah was more like the land, um, the, the land of Israel, which suffered under the Babylonians and the Romans and stuff. But the, uh, with the Babylonian um, destruction under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, they, they would teach that that was the suffering Messiah, was the lamb, uh, the land of Israel and not a person. So when Jesus came, they weren't looking for the suffering Messiah. They were looking for the victorious warrior judge king. And if you recall in the scriptures and the four gospels, people kept asking at times, even his disciples were constantly asking, is it, is it at this time you're going to overthrow the Romans and, and you know, sit on the throne and, and make Israel, you know, the, the nation that will last forever? They didn't understand. See, we are both now the uh, Jews and Christians were both waiting for the same Messiah. This is the victorious warrior Judge King. And when he comes this time, he's not coming as the suffering Messiah full of grace. He's coming as the righteous judge and who's going to, the, the time of grace will be over and he's coming as a king and he will come as a judge. So there's future events, and in this study, we're not talking that much, uh, we're not covering the future events hardly at all. We're showing you evidence, evidence for your faith, that Jesus Christ truly is 
the Messiah, that he is the suffering Messiah. And taking the Old Testament scriptures, as we have been doing, and showing you how Jesus fulfilled all of these. There's over 250 messianic prophecies. There's about 80 or so major ones, and these are the ones that we're doing. Major prophecies that were fulfilled by the suffering Messiah, who is Jesus. So with that, let's get to number 56. This is Isaiah chapter 9. It's going to be a very familiar passage to you. Chapter 9, it's the first seven verses. And um, actually, we're going to focus mostly on verse verses 1 and 2, and then 6 and 7 of this passage. But this is a phenomenal passage. You will recognize this, I'm sure, because it's often read, and it was used in Handel's Messiah, even, um, if, you're in, if you're a fan of the Messiah. Um, Handel's great work and stuff on that. But anyway, let's read. And I'm using the English Standard Version, a word-for-word translation, to try and be more accurate than, than a thought-for-thought thought like an NIV or an NLT as we're going through, because a lot of times we're looking at specific words. So as we read, it goes, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Now, just stopping there, and I think I forgot to say what the title of this is, this first section, well, this, this passage here. I'm calling this, Unto Us a Child is Born, because that's what we're going to get into in the second part of this. Unto Us a Child is Born. This is Prophecy 56, and in this we saw a couple of things actually mentioned. You'll notice the name Galilee, the location, the geographical name Galilee. It even talks about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. That is what would become the land of Galilee. And Galilee, of course, we know the Sea of Galilee, which actually has a lot of names, but it was just a big freshwater lake. But Galilee, that area of the Sea of Galilee to the west was the area. And of course, that's where Jesus came from uh, and lived. It says, like, uh, in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is actually talking about that there is, uh, the Messiah is going to be um, living and he's going to be doing his ministry because it talks about a light. Jesus is the light of the world. The light is going to shine from Galilee. Now, of course, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Practically everybody knows this. Even non-Christians are familiar with that, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But he spent very little time in Bethlehem. It was his birthplace. And maybe just a short period of time, a couple of years, he, as a toddler, they moved to Egypt to flee because Herod the Great was trying to kill the child. And they stayed in Egypt for a while, but then they came back to the land of Judah when Herod had died. And they went up to the land of Naphtali in Zebulun in Galilee, specifically to Nazareth. Nazareth sits in Galilee. And what was Jesus often called? As a title, we call him Jesus of Nazareth. This is fulfilling this prophecy. And also, now it's just not that he's from Galilee, but notice it talks about him being a light. Being a light is talking about not being born. It's talking about the ministry that he is doing. And Jesus spent almost three and a half years in ministry, and almost all of this was done in Galilee. 
And there's a little area there, um, like the evangelical triangle, it's often called, from like Bethesda to Capernaum to uh, Chorazin. And if you, on a map, if you have an atlas and you draw the lines to those three, you get this triangle. And that's where Jesus spent most of his time in ministry, was in this area. And so here, he is the light shining in a land of darkness. People who were lost, people who, who did not understand God, did not understand the offer of God and of, of what God wanted of people. And the light comes, Jesus comes and explains because he is totally God in human flesh. And he explains, he is the light of the world and enlightening people. And where's this taking place? In Galilee. So the people see a great light in Galilee. That's where Jesus does most of his ministry. So that's where he grew up. That was the base of his ministry. It says that in Capernaum, that was where he actually lived during his ministry. And so that's right in Galilee. So there we have it. And Isaiah foretold this now, remember, hundreds of years beforehand. And we know this was not written after the time of Christ, that Christians later on, hundreds of years later, tried to make Jesus into some um, some deity by falsifying the Old Testament and stuff, because the Dead Sea Scrolls were um, that have been discovered predate Jesus's birth by hundreds of years. And so we know that this was all written at least 140 years before the time of Christ, that this does date back into ancient time. And it's a true prophecy about the coming Messiah. Now, the Messiah would live in that area and that that's that place gets honored because of that. But we move on now to verses six and seven of this passage, and we see something else. Now, here is a passage most will know. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, this is a phenomenal prophecy. I almost feel like singing here because this is like, you know, right out of um, the Messiah and stuff, singing this song. But here we have a child is born. Notice that the Messiah is coming as a child. He's not coming as an adult. Now, the next time Jesus comes, he's going to be an adult because he's he's coming on a horse. He, this time he was born of, a, of the Virgin Mary, and he came as an infant, as a child. He grew up. And then when he got to be 30 years old, according to the Gospel of Luke, that's when he began his ministry. So, Isaiah tells us the Messiah will come as a child and actually be born. And that's exactly what happened. Not only that, it says a son will be given. So the Messiah is going to be a male child. And Jesus is male. So there we have it. That fulfillment of it. And it says the government shall be upon his shoulder. Um, and... Um, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this is really interesting. We're going to come back to this uh, about the government. I'll explain that in just a second. But let's get to these names. Now, I, I got to tell you a very interesting thing here. A lot of times people will say when they, when they read this, they'll give the name Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. But they separate wonderful and counselor. And actually, back in the Hebrew that this is written in, these words are meant to be combined. He's a wonderful counselor. He's just not wonderful, though we have songs and there's even hymns that sort of take this uh, incorrectly, that they, they give God, and he is, don't get me wrong, God is wonderful, no question about it. I'll be the first to admit that. He is wonderful, and he is a great counselor. But the thing is, he is a wonderful counselor. It's talking about being a a type of um, a counselor that is absolutely wonderful. So it's a combined name, not two separate names here, wonderful counselor. Then the next one is mighty God. Now, by the way, I should probably mention having to do with counselor. I didn't mention this, but counselor is somebody who you seek for what? Wisdom. And Jesus came. What did he spout to everybody? Wisdom. God is wisdom. To know God is to be wise. So a wonderful person giving, um, a wonderful God giving information on how to live, how to counsel us, how, how to live our lives. That's what a counselor does. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Now, the next point, it says mighty God. Now, this is interesting because it's actually going back to the Hebrew name for God. God has many different names. One is called El Gibor, and this is the name that's mentioned here. If you go back into the Hebrew, as it comes here, it says El Gabor. Now, what does this mean? Well, El Gabor, actually translated in English, means like a, a powerful, mighty God or um, a warrior God. That's what this means. And he is the, it's a name, a personal name for God. And that this Messiah, you notice who he is? He is mighty warrior God. That's who's being born here. His name would be Mighty Warrior God. He is totally God here. And so he is just not coming when he comes the second time here. As he comes again in these end time prophecies, he is, and he, you know, he is a mighty, he is the mighty warrior God. Power in, in his name. And we sing many hymns and stuff to that. Then the next title that is given is everlasting father. Now this one is really interesting because going back to the Hebrew and the way that this reads, it's the, really means father of eternity. It's the way that it would be translated, I think a little bit more in, in, into English, is um, father of eternity. We call it everlasting father, meaning the same thing, but father of eternity. Uh, this is talking about the author of creation. This verse here is telling us that this Messiah was there at creation because he is totally God. Now. There are some cults, there are some people that will say, and even some misled Christians, maybe they're Christians, I don't know, it's not for me to judge them, but there are some who say that Jesus is not, was not God all of his entire life, that he became a God later on. Some say that he was a Archangel Michael and it became a God, or he was an ordinary man that at his baptism, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon and made him a God. That is not true. That is not true. That is contrary to scripture because we have seen already prophecies that he would be, this Messiah would be God. And this is one again. And this one speaks mightily of this because this child that's going to be born, this son is going to be the father of eternity. The author of creation is what this is saying. Now, just to tell you a little story here. I had a person one time, actually it was a couple of people, came knocking at my door. It was a day, uh, I think it was a Saturday morning, but they came knocking at my door. It was in the summertime. And 
they got into a conversation with me up, uh, about their religion and I was like, okay, oh, let's let's just let's just cut to the chase here. I said, let's just just hold on a minute. Um, let's just talk about the difference between what you're saying and what I believe. I said, let's let's not get into different terminologies and doctrines and stuff on on lesser things. Let's just go right to the tr- the root of it. Who do you say Jesus is, and who do I say Jesus is? And there's the difference. And and they said, well, Jesus. They were trying to tell me that Jesus was not the eternal God. And I said, that is that is incorrect. And then uh, they said, well, why do you say that? And I started to quote um, John chapter one, verses one, two and three. Uh, In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Um, He created everything. You get down to verse 14 of chapter one. It says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt with us. And they said, well, that, that is because of a, a misinterpretation of Greek. And I said, oh, so you have a problem with the Greek here. And I said, um, okay, we, we talked a little bit about this. And I said, okay, let, I disagree with you on the way that this is phrased in Greek, but let's go back to Hebrew for a minute. And I said, here in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it's talking about the coming Messiah, and notice that it says a child, a son is born, and he is already, at this point, the everlasting father. He is the father eternal, the eternal father, the the author of creation. He is eternal. Thus, he has already been existing. They didn't know how to answer me on this. This I got them stumped, and eventually they they didn't know where to go. They kept trying to go uh, to a different topic, and I said, "No, this let's this is the topic that we need to talk about because this is the difference between you and me." I said, "I believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, that He is totally God. He's totally human, but He's totally God also, and He was always in existence. And as it says in John, as it says in Colossians, and it says in Hebrews chapter one, He's the Creator." God. And this is talking about this too. He's the author of creation. He is everlasting. I said, what don't you grab about this? What can't you comprehend? He's everlasting. Jesus is everlasting. He is eternal is what this is saying. So, they, they had no idea. They went and actually got a, another person who was sitting in the car, and they came out. We talked a little bit more and because uh, they didn't know how to answer me on this. And finally, they just uh, decided, well, um, that's nice. And if you ever want to hear some literature you can read and stuff like this, they totally changed the subject. They didn't want to talk with me anymore, basically. Uh, they were very polite and, and everything. And I said, well, that's fine. Um, and that was it. They never came back to my door. Um, and that's fine. Um, but they couldn't explain it because what they're trying to tell me is not true. Scripture in many places points that Jesus is eternal God and that he is the author of creation. That's who this is. Then it talks about him being in this passage, the Prince of Peace. Now, some people get confused here and they think, well, how come we, if Jesus came, was the Prince of Peace, how come we don't have world peace? It's not talking about world peace. That's not the piece at this point this is talking about. This is the suffering Messiah coming, and he's giving us peace, yes, but peace with God. 
because up until the Messiah, we accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah as our Lord and Savior. We are enemies with God. We don't have peace with God. We are enemies of God. Paul points this out very distinctly, that we were enemies of God until we became Christians, until we become saved, um, become born again. And so we were enemies of God. But here we become this this Messiah is going to come and he's going to fix the problem of, of us being enemies with, with God Almighty, with the, the God, the Father, and he's going to make peace with us. And that's what we as Christians have. And it's something that we cannot explain to the secular world. They just don't get it. That we don't feel uh, the anguish and stuff um, for actions because Jesus took away all this and we we can now find peace with God and as Jesus says you can boldly approach the throne of the Father so we have peace with God that's what this is talking about talking about world peace now there is a time when the Messiah comes again we will have world peace where he will reign in peace and his kingdom will be forever and it will be um, totally peaceful at that time so that's what this is actually talking about. And I hope I've explained about uh, the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace because he forms peace and grants us peace with God. Uh, we're no longer enemies. We're part of God's family. I mean, thank you, Lord. Praise God for that one right there. Then it ends with of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. This is eventually getting into verse 7, um, talking about the uh, millennial kingdom um, and that's what is being portrayed here in the end time prophecies and stuff that his millennial kingdom will be a time of total peace but you know this this passage is also talked about um in the birth account in luke chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 when uh the shepherds were um out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night and the angel of the lord appears and it says and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising god and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Again, fallen man can now have peace with the most holy God, our Father God. The latter part of the verse is talking about the fulfillment of a prophecy yet to come. But this is also talking about, if you catch this, that this Messiah is going to have an everlasting kingdom. This fulfills what God has promised David many times, that and Jesus is a descendant of David, and that he would reign on the throne forever. So, isn't that a fascinating prophecy? I, I know we've sort of skimmed over that quickly, and we could spend days actually talking about that. But that is a cool, cool prophecy. And that was number 56. So, let's go to number 57. This is Isaiah chapter 11. And we're going to concentrate on the first two verses, uh, particularly here. And Isaiah chapter 11, again, this is number 57. Isaiah chapter 11, and it's called... The branch of Jesse, the branch of Jesse. Much of what you see in chapter 11 of Isaiah is dealing with the second coming Messiah, the victorious warrior, judge, king Messiah. But there's a part of this at the beginning, the first two verses, that actually refers also to Jesus as the suffering Messiah. So as we read this, this is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Think of Jesus, the suffering Messiah, and some of the prophecies we've already talked about, and see what it says here. It reads, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And if you go to the third verse, we could just read the beginning of it. It says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is talking about Jesus as the suffering Messiah, not just as the futuristic um, warrior king Messiah, because um, this, it's talking about, it's almost parallel to what we just got done reading. We see some of the same thing, wisdom, understanding, counsel. We talk about might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Jesus was constantly always focused on what was the Father's will, following what God's the father wanted him to do. And that's what this is. But it talks about it being a shoot um, coming from the line of Jesse and who was David's father, but Jesse. So this is definitely messianic. It's talking about a descendant of David, um, a branch that would come forth and would be um, this, uh, this suffering Messiah as he would be born. And as we know, Jesus was many times even called son of David. Um, because it's a reference here dealing with the branch and the shoot, um, that a term that means Messiah. Branch and shoot are, are messianic terms. And if you want to go to, like, even the classic Matthew Henry's commentary, uh, you can read the Messiah is called a rod and a branch. Uh, the words signify a small, tender product, a, a shoot, such as easily is broken off. He comes forth out of the stem of Jesse. When the royal family was cut down and almost leveled to the ground, it would sprout again. The house of David was brought very low at the time of Christ's birth. But the Messiah thus gave an early notice that his kingdom was not of this world. So this, it goes in a little bit, as we've seen so many times, a parallel part with David, but then gets the full fulfillment out of the Messiah. So that's what this is talking about. He would be empowered by the Spirit, of course, at the baptism, the Spirit of God descends on him, but he was already God. And there's where we see God the Father speaking, the Spirit descending upon him, and Jesus himself standing there. You have all three, all three parts of what we commonly just call the Trinity, God three in one right there. But um, the rest of these verses here primarily deal with the future kingdom, what's going to come. So that's beyond our our uh, scope of our study here. Let's go to number uh, 58. Number 58. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Isaiah 28, 16. And I'm entitling this one, The Precious Cornerstone. The Precious Cornerstone. Some of you will probably already think, wow, I've heard that before. Yeah, we have songs and stuff written about it. It reads in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So this has some interesting terms to it. It's talking about God and being a stone. We see, and we've covered this once before, um, the term stone or rock referring to God. And just to make sure you understand this, um, if you missed it in the first, uh, in a lesson prior, uh, many times prior to this, but I talked about this once before. A rock was something that the Jews in particular often referred to as God, as a symbol of God. Sometimes they actually worshiped rocks as an you know, image of God. That's a sin. Uh, that's against the Ten Commandments. But 
they would refer to him, not just as like we saw in the last prop, uh, prophecy of branch or a shoot or a light, um, as we've seen in some others, but another messi- uh, or a term for God is rock. A term for God is rock. Now, why? Um, why is a rock God referred to as a rock? And it's because to the ancient period people, uh, ancient times, um, if you go out as a child into your yard and you have a boulder sitting out there, say you're four or five years old, you see that boulder, that boulder is just sitting there. Now, you grow up, you move away or whatever, and then you come back, say you're in your 60s or 70s, and you come back, that boulder is still there. If there hasn't been anybody touching it, just natural things, that boulder is still sitting there. And something else, that boulder is unchanged. Rock does not change unless it is you know, manipulated in some way. Man is doing something with it. Um, but a rock does not change. Now, because a rock does not change, well, there's something else that doesn't change. Malachi 3, 6. God does not change. We've already covered this in an earlier prophecy, too. Um, we've seen God does not change. And here again, because God does not change, rocks do not change. That's why, primarily, in that culture, they would sometimes refer to God as a rock because it is unchanging. So that's how that term comes about. But there's something different here. In this verse, we see God, the Father, speaking and saying, He will lay at Zion a stone. For this reason, the stone is being placed here by God, and that is the Messiah. God will send and place his Messiah, and he will come, um, which he did as the first Messiah. Paul uses this passage, and, and Peter uses it also. This exact thing, they quote it uh, in, in different passages. Let me show you. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For no one can lay a foundation other than the, that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's making reference to this verse. A stone being laid, a foundation. And that's what that is. Uh, Peter talks about it, and he goes in, into more detail on it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, we read, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, quote, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, unquote. So we see this exact passage being used directly by Peter. Paul references it too. But Peter directly is making a reference to this verse as being Jesus the Messiah, who was rejected by the people. Yet he is the important cornerstone of his church, of of. of the entire followers of Jesus, the most important. We build everything upon God, and God is the stone. And that's that one there. Then we come to um, the next one here. This would be number 59. 59 is, is a really interesting one. And um, this is Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18. We're calling this the healing Messiah. The healing Messiah. Now, as we've said numerous times, these old covenant or Old Testament prophecies 
were not just written down to prove Jesus was the Messiah, but they were also to be indicators to the Jews on how to recognize the Messiah when he came. Now, this is one of these. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18, we read, In that day the deaf shall hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Wow, what a day that would be for Israel when their Messiah would come with what? Healing in his wings. The healing Messiah. And by the way, this specifically talks about the the blind and the deaf, the deaf and blind. And go back, look at the Gospels. How many times does Jesus heal the blind and the deaf? Frequently. He healed them. Now, you might be thinking, okay, it's another one of Jesus' miracles. Oh, oh, but we often miss something very important here. This, this is so cool. Now, he's going to be healing the deaf and the blind. You'll recognize the Messiah because he heals the deaf and the blind. Those two miracles specifically. Now, think back to the Old Testament, the uh, book of First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, and and the writings throughout the histories and stuff. You have prophets, uh, and even Moses doing miracles. You have prophets, but none of these prophets, and they did mighty miracles, mighty miracles, sp- uh, spreading the um, the Red Sea, or uh, speaking to a rock, or hitting a rock and water coming forth, or even Elijah and Elijah both, raising someone from the dead. Actually, it's the power of God doing all these, of course, but you get my, my meaning here. They're being performed through, through these people, these prophets. They did all sorts of things, but not one time, not one time do you find any Old Testament miracle involving a deaf or a blind person especially born that way, who can hear or see. The healing of the blind and the deaf. Because it was not found in the Old Testament throughout the entire Tanakh, you don't see this of any prophet. Only God himself could do it. Thus, this prophecy is saying, if someone can heal the blind and the deaf, no prophet has ever done it in the Old Testament. This is exclusively different. Raising the dead, yes. Jesus raised the dead, but so did Elijah. Elijah. So, no, no, no. This is different. And we might think, well, raising the dead seems more more you know, like godlike than anything else. But Scripture is telling us, no, the healing the deaf and the blind will indicate who the Messiah is. And what does Jesus come and do? He heals the deaf and the blind. And the people missed it. I mean, Jesus did this often. Of all the vast miracles and stuff, these, the healing of the deaf and the blind, were common with Jesus. And this actually links to another messianic prophecy. Let's go to number 60. And this is Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. And I entitled this one, The One Who Opens the Ears and the Mouths. So we just had the healing Messiah as a subtopic on the last one. This one is similar. One who opens the ears and the mouth. And you can see it's very similar here we're talking about. So let's read this one and and see what we have here. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. The waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. We're seeing some phenomenal miracles again, um, talking about healing the blind, healing the deaf, and even people who are lame that they jump up and are dancing around, which we see 
Jesus is responsible for all these types of miracles. People would see these fulfilled right in front of them, having knowledge of these prophecies, and they still missed it. The majority missed it. Yes, the deaf would hear again. The lame that came to Jesus by the thousands would leap and be healed of their bondage. The mute would call out praises to God. Yes, we see all these. All of this is indicating, and I think these are just fantastic prophecies, and how Jesus fulfilled it. Nobody else in history had ever done this. Nobody ever will. It's something specifically for God to do, and God did this. Well, we are out of time here today, um, but I, I hope that these last two just really gripped you because this is so cool, showing truly Jesus is the Messiah. I have no doubt in my mind that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. When you see these prophecies, these 80 or so major prophecies that we're covering and seeing how Jesus fulfilled these so clearly, it just is just shouting out to the world, Jesus is the the suffering Messiah. And he came offering grace. We live in a period of grace that he offered by dying for our sins. And if we just accept, if we, if we have faith and put our trust and commit our lives, as Jesus said frequently, if we repent and turn to him, he would save us. It's just not head knowledge. Jesus's message was constantly to repent, to follow him, meaning change the direction of your life, change the way you're doing. What boggles my mind is how many people will claim to be a Christian, their, their life is no different than what they were before. They were terrible sinners beforehand, and even after they claim to be sinners, they have not changed anything in their life. They have nothing but just a verbal response. And I'll tell you, that's not right, because Jesus constantly was saying, to repent. And repent means to change the course of the way you are living, the way you are doing, the way you are thinking. We start to see this because the Holy Spirit indwells us and helps us to do this. One challenge I give for you uh, people every year when I speak in uh, New Year's is take an evaluation of your life. Christians, look carefully. Do you see yourself growing closer to be like God? Yes, folks, we all sin. We still sin, but we shouldn't be sinning as much. And if we had major sins before we became Christian, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we are now his temple and we start to change. And if you have not experienced that, maybe you're just living off of the head knowledge of Jesus and you've never really put your faith, commitment and repented. And that's what Jesus's message was. He told his Christian followers, his his all of his followers, people will recognize you by your love for each other, but how you will be recognized from your earlier life, your sinful life, uh, before you're saved to not, is by through repentance. If you repent, it literally means to change. Have you changed? If not, I invite you right now, take a moment and just say, God, God, I've maybe just, I, I, I've been going just on, on historical facts about you, and I've never repented. Um, please forgive me my sins, but Lord, help me make this change. Put your spirit inside of me. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new outlook in life. Change the direction of my life. Now, he might not give you millions of dollars. He might not give you a new car. He might not do anything. Most of the time, he doesn't. That's not his promise. His promise is he will give you peace with God and we can live forever in eternal fellowship with God the Father. And his spirit indwells us and gives us joy. Difference between joy and being happy. Happy is fleeting. Joy is there all the time. 
And that's what you get from God. Yes, getting a new car, getting a computer, something that makes us happy, but that fleets away in time, particularly as the car rusts or the computer gets outmoded or gets a virus. But joy of Jesus Christ living in us, that is there all the time, and we can always go back on that. Have you repented? That's what Jesus wants. You to repent and turn to him for your salvation, because he died for you, and now he wants to put his spirit inside of you and have this peace with God the Father. I invite you to pray that. And if you do, please contact us. We would love to know that. If not, contact a good church in your area, a pastor. Tell somebody about it. Don't keep it a secret. Let that news out. And please contact us so maybe we can even help you, um, in some cases, even locate a church if you're in a certain area or whatever. Um, I've had people come and, and contact me on that kind of thing, but whatever. I hope you're growing close to God. And each year you grow a little closer. So, until we meet again, I want you to take care and may God bless you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.